0: You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party?
1: Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican party? And the answer is absolutely
0: not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic.
1: We trust the lamb, not the
0: donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over
1: tribe. Do you? If you're anything like me, you probably feel like our current cultural moment is exceedingly more confusing than the cultural moment of five years ago or 10 years ago or certainly 15 years ago. A few weeks ago, I was playing the game Pac-Man. I like playing video games. And Pac-Man's a classic. It might have been one of the very first ones I ever played. Is this your house or were you like at a pizza joint? Yeah, I was at at the Pizza Hut playing some (laughs) Pac-Man with my quarters. Have you ever played Pac-Man, Keith? Yes. Are you sure? What color is Pac-Man, Keith? blue he's yellow okay so let's just (laughs) don't they turn blue and white and then you chase him down yeah so if you remember it's like a giant maze and you're this little pizza slice this yellow pizza slice called pac-man that kind of opens and shuts his mouth and your goal is to eat all these little dots but there's these ghosts chasing you i think they're called pinky inky and binky or blinky pinky inky and blinky i think are their names they have names anyways they're all different colors like a pink one and a red one the whole point of the game though is You are Pac-Man, and these ghosts are chasing you. And if they catch you, you die. You lose one of your lives. You eat the dots up. Yeah, you eat the dots up. And if you get, like, a mega dot, then the ghost turns into something you can eat. And you chase them down. And you chase them down. So, you know, it's a fun game. It's a classic. But I couldn't help but, as I was playing this, think about the reality that sometimes in today's cultural moment, I feel a little like Pac-Man. Like, there's four different ghosts chasing after me, and they're not even on the same team, you know? Maybe the ghost is the, you know, kind of progressive left, and it's coming after you for one reason. Mm -hmm. Then you've got the far right, it's coming at you for a different reason. It's like I've got AOC and Tucker Carlson on my tail. (laughs) Uh, Not really. They don't know who I am. They couldn't care less who I am. But my only way around is navigating this impossible maze that often gets you stuck and cornered between two sides. I mean, that's how you die as Pac-Man, is if two ghosts come around a corner together and you're just stuck there in the middle. And so, like, great Pac-Man players, they will memorize the routes that the ghosts take. So, No, that-
0: no these aren't called great Pac-Man players. These are called people with no life.
1: <laughs> and are you going to tell me that you are one of them? No, no, I've never been that good at Pac-Man. I've never memorized the routes. But that seems to be the only way out. And I sales to say is sometimes it feels like you're stuck in this maze where even when you're not trying, to, you get caught in a corner between two sides, and they're coming at you, and you feel like you're going to get devoured and eaten. And of course, the temptation is to eat one of those super dots and try to devour them instead. But sometimes that's what this moment feels like to me.
0: Well, it's interesting that you say that you can memorize the way that the monster, inky, blinky, and whatever, (laughs) Jar Jar Binks go (laughs) a little bit. Maybe that's a pattern for us, or a model for us, that we need to learn how the people who are chasing us or at least it feels like they're chasing us of our faith, how they operate so that we'll know how to navigate
1: our current moment. Yeah, yeah. Here's here's another illustration of being stuck in a maze. Do you remember what the maze is called? Is it the Hampton Court? Hampton Court Maze in England. And the idea was that the
0: king there had made this beautiful maze, like a think corn maze, except British style. It's got these beautiful hedges and flowers. And you could go in there, and the goal is to find your way into the center. But what would happen is that people would get lost in it, and they couldn't find their way out. And so what they did is they built a platform above the maze where someone would stand up there who could see the whole maze from a different angle, a different perspective, and then tell people, hey, you need to go right or left, or you need to go this way. If they got to a point, they couldn't figure out you know, what the right way was.
1: So I feel like one of those people stuck in the maze, except there's no maze college. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, you're stuck. I want to get to the center. I want to make my way out, but I have absolutely no idea where I am. And the sun is setting and I'm terrified because I'm stuck in this hedge and I don't know how to escape. And so I say all this to say, maybe you feel the same way in your life. Maybe it's in your office. Maybe it's with your family and friends. Maybe it's online on social media. There's so many different spaces where I think we feel like we're stuck in a maze where people are coming after us and there's no one there to call the maze to tell us, here's where you go, here's how you get out. I think what you were saying earlier is that
0: we didn't always feel this way. In other words, we kind of look back on Christians in the past, maybe 10 years ago, five years ago, 100 years ago, whatever, and say they didn't feel like us. And there's a lot of reasons for us to feel like we are maybe in a new moment in history. For example, I was reading a story the other day about Arizona Christian University and how they have been supplying student teachers to the school district in Arizona for years. I think it goes 11 years years. They've never had any problems. It's all gone super well. But the school board there recently by unanimous vote said we'll no longer accept student teachers in our system because this school is a Christian school. And therefore, we don't want to have anything to do with them. We're kind of afraid of their Christian values.
1: Was there a particular value? They say, oh, we can't have teachers who hold to your sex ethic, or was it just to kind of generalize we don't trust the Christians?
0: Well, it was more specific. The school board members had gone onto the website of this Christian school and saw that they were kind of standing for biblical values from marriage to who Jesus was, all kinds of things. And they thought it seemed too exclusive, too narrow. Now, mind you, they hadn't had any incidents, any problems with their student teachers. No one had said anything or refused to help a student in the classroom they were working in. But because they were Christians committed to following Jesus in this world and following Jesus's ethic, we can't have them anymore. And that just feels new. It doesn't feel like that would have happened five or ten years ago.
1: Yeah, well, again, it feels like Inky Blinky, Jar Jar Binky, whatever their names are, (laughs) kind of coming after you and you get stuck in a corner and you're not sure how to escape. I mean, I don't know how you navigate that as a Christian school and how the students who want to be student teachers and get a job one day navigate it. I have a similar story from a friend and actually a listener of this podcast who shared that he quite by accident managed to get himself elected to his company's DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Board. This is an organization that is kind of tasked with the job of making sure that their workplace is tolerant, safe for minorities, sexual minorities, all kinds of minorities. And there's a lot of really good commendable things. He really didn't mean to be on the board. He kind of accidentally got, I think, voted onto the board. But he shared that during one of the very first board meetings, there was someone, And by the way, no one on the board seems to know that he's a Christian. I think the company is just large enough. He didn't really know anybody on the board, but someone started saying, hey, we've got these Christians who maybe aren't going to be on board for some of our initiatives, and I've got a great solution to the problem. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Let's fire them all. <laughs> <laughs> and so you got to imagine, he's a great That's guy. not very inclusive, <laughs> is <it>? he? <laughs> no, it's like, he's a great guy. He's not combative. You know, he's not trying to start a fight, but he's got to feel a little bit uncomfortable in this moment of, well, I'm a Christian and I hold to some of these traditional, you know, sex ethics and values that you're maybe kind of offended by. And he's wondering in his like, what do I do here? You know, do I speak up as if, if I speak up and now I'm getting embroiled into like this DEI battle, I might lose these people for Jesus because they're gonna say, oh, see, here's another one of those Christians fighting the fight. But on the flip side, if he stays silent, he might allow some Christians wrongly to be terminated.
0: He might get fired if he spoke up. So I'm sure there's a little bit of, I mean, at least if I were me, I would feel a little bit selfish motivation just to want to keep my head down and keep quiet. (laughs) But that's what a lot of Christians do in that situation. When you feel like your intention, one response is to be quiet and don't say anything and
1: hope the problem goes away. Well, you know, and just to be fair to him in the situation, thankfully the head of HR stepped up and said, hey, uh, we can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to, but the legal department (laughs) won't let me. And so it's worth saying that there are some legal structures in our society that protect, you know, Christians from some of these things. And I think sometimes it's really easy to get caught up and feel really like this description, I'm even giving a Pac-Man. The ghosts are coming for me. They're going to eat me. But my point here is what would you do if you were in that guy's situation? How would you respond? What would you say? What would you feel? Would you feel like you're in a bit Amazed, confused, don't know which way to turn, how to respond. I mean, I would, I wouldn't know what to do in that moment.
0: Well, just think what his options were. They're really not that many, so it doesn't take long to go through them. Like I said, part of you just wants to keep quiet, put your head down, and not expose yourself to whatever flack is going to come if you speak up. Another option is just to be outraged, to speak up, but in an angry way. Maybe file a lawsuit. Hey, you can't do this. This isn't allowed. This isn't constitutional. Maybe another way would just be to sit and fret and be anxious, to be caught in the spin cycle, to not make any decision either way. And it just kind of makes you miserable because you don't know what to do. You're afraid people are coming after you. You don't know how to respond. So I
1: don't know what other options are there. (laughs) I mean, I think those are maybe all the options at the table. So why are we talking about this? Well, I think it's because a lot of Christians in various places in their life to varying degrees, I mean, many people listening to us have never experienced anything quite like that. But we do feel this sense that I feel out of place right now. You know, I feel a tension between my faith and being a good employee. And I think a lot of Christians are asking, why do we feel so much tension? Why is there so much tension between Christianity and our cultural environment? And in a lot of ways, I think people are saying this feels really new. And so can someone explain it to me? And this makes me think about a really ancient story. You ready for this, Keith? Uh Uh-oh. Do we have music for the private school moments on our (laughs) podcast? We should add that. That'd be really fun. This is a private school moment. So it's an ancient story about Alexander the Great, who was a Macedonian conqueror from Greece or the Grecian area who conquered all of the Persian Empire. He's one of the greatest conquerors in human history. But he's leaving Macedonia and he goes across the sea to what's modern day Turkey. And he gets to the center of that area where there's a kingdom called the Kingdom of Phrygia. You heard of Phrygia before? No. You have. Come on. You're being dishonest. (laughs) Phrygia? Phrygia. Phrygia. How do you pronounce it? Someone tell us how you pronounce it. And he gets there. And when he arrives, inside of the palace that he wants to conquer, there's a cart that's been tied to a big pillar with this very intricate knot. And there's a legend that whoever can untie this knot will be the one who has the right to rule Phrygia. And so Alexander the Great, being a conqueror and a probably a narcissist and an egoist, decides, yep, I'm going to be the one who unties <laughs> the knot. And so he starts trying to untie the knot, and he can't figure out how to untie the knot because there's no ends. like You can't see where the knot begins and ends. And finally, he comes up with a solution. He takes out his sword, and he just cuts the knot in half. <laughs> Is that cheating? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I but love it. The, the people bought it. I mean, they didn't have much of a choice. They were already conquered at this point. It reminds me of that scene in the Harrison Ford film
0: when the guy comes out with the sword <laughs> and is all intimidating, doing all these sword tricks. And Harrison Ford then not pull out a gun and yeah, shoot him. Yeah, shoot them. <laughs> so the knot had all its tricks, and he just, i slice it open.
1: <laughs> yeah, and so that knot, it's in mythology called the Gordian Knot, because the person who tied it, his name was Gordium which I don't know how it went from Gordium to Gordian, but it's the Gordian knot. And so it's kind of become this phrase where you talk about people cutting the Gordian knot. It's saying, here's a really complex, confusing problem. Can we find a simple answer to the problem and cut straight through it and solve it? That's cutting the Gordian knot. And we are in the midst of this maze-like, incredibly complex situation, a knot that's really difficult to untie. And what we're seeing amongst a lot of Christian thinkers and leaders, pastors, just Christians in general, are efforts to try to untie this Gordian knot. Why do I feel so much tension right now? What's changed? Can we explain it? Can we cut the knot or untie it? And there's a guy named Aaron Wren, who I'm a
0: subscriber to his Substack. I kind of like him. I think he's provocative. I don't always agree with him, but I enjoy his writing and his podcast. And he published an article in First Things. When was
1: this? Uh, it was last year.
0: 2021, 2022? 2022. Okay. So he published an article in First Things, and he posited that we have moved as a culture from a positive world into a neutral world and now into a negative world. And that was his explanation of why we feel so much tension, because the world has changed. The culture used to have a positive view of being a Christian. So you would maybe go to church even if you weren't really into the religious thing, because it would be good for your business contacts. And then kind of came this neutral part. Where, you know, church wasn't considered or Christianity wasn't considered good or bad. It was just kind of this neutral ground. Now, originally he had said starting in about 1965, he went back and amended that to take away that date. And I don't know if he moved it or if he just took out the date completely, but he says now we live in a negative world. So his explanation or his way to untie the Gordian knot is to say the reason we feel so much tension is because the world has changed. And you can kind of see where he's coming from. I I mean, there's a lot of people who have been attracted to that explanation because it does have some explanatory power. It does feel like things have changed.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's undeniable that Christianity seems or feels to a lot of us like a much more negative thing. It's not a status builder. No one's going to be impressed by you because you say you're a Christian. They're not going to say, "I want to work with you because you go to church." And so again, I think it's why such a persuasive answer is that really everything has changed. I want us just to show what I think is kind of right about his argument is to look at a few major shifts that have happened in our culture that fit with this particular solution to the Gordian Knot, and that would be demographic shifts, shifting language, shifting moral norms, and shifting prominence and acceptance. So let's hop into each one of those one at a time. Let's start with demographic shifts. We are going through a massive demographic shift right now. Over the last 25 years, 40 million Christians have de-churched, making the last 25 years the largest religious shift in American history, and it's away from the church.
0: And this data is from Ryan Burge, is that right? it's from... Probably the best guy talking about the changing demographic within Christianity and broader faith, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, it's from him. There's going to be a book coming out called The Great Dechurching. I don't even think you can pre-order it yet, but this data is going to be explored there. So credits Ryan Burge, Michael Graham, and others who gave us this data. But that's a major shift, is the point.
0: 40 million Christians have left the church. That's just what it means to be dechurched. And then between 1953 and 2022... So, what's that, 70 ish years? Almost exactly. The number of Protestants have gone from 70% of the population self identified down to 34% of the population. So, imagine that. I mean, that's cutting it in half, the number of people who consider themselves Protestants. So, you can see why somebody like Aaron Wren would say, hey, you know, the world really has changed. And going along with that decline of Protestants has been the rise of the nuns, which we've talked here before, not the N-U-N-S. Not but the, the habit wearing nuns. The N-O-N-E-S, the spiritual nuns, those who when they see a list of a religious options say, I'm none of the above. Now that number has grown almost to be twenty-five percent of the population. The percentage of Protestants is roughly thirty-four percent, percentage of nuns, roughly twenty-five percent. So that's a huge change because those faith commitments or lack of commitments come with a lot of implications for people's worldviews, how they think about the world, how they vote, how they live their life, their values, all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. And when you go through that kind of demographic shift, it means that in the 50s, you could expect that there were Christians who were adjacent to power, held power, were peripheral to power in some sense. And now with so few Protestants in the United States, Christians feel increasingly marginalized to power. They don't feel like they're at the center or adjacent to power because there's just fewer of them who are going to be CEOs, who are going to run companies, who are going to run small businesses, who are going to be in office. And so that makes a giant difference just in your perception of what's Christianity's role in culture.
0: So the second thing we've seen change is our language. Language, how we talk and what words mean, tell us a lot about a culture's worldview. And Christian language made sense to a lot of people, the vast majority of Americans, whether or not they were in the church, whether or not they consider themselves Christians. So if you use words like heaven, hell, God, faith, salvation, the same image or very similar images came into people's minds. They understood what sin was. It was like a moral transgression of God's law. So you could have someone like a Billy Graham come in and do this big crusade and talk about God, faith, salvation, heaven, hell, sin. And it made sense to everybody. I remember being on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, and we would talk to people about the four spiritual laws. And when we talked about God, sin, put your faith in Jesus, it made sense to them. It wasn't like the first time they'd heard it. They'd heard these things before. And the only question really was, are you ready now to make this decision. It's something that had been on people's minds. And this is probably
1: in the 80s and 90s, not that long ago we're noticing a change. I mean, if language, like Kicha said, is kind of a shared social space and language makes sense when we have shared meanings, what happens when we lose those shared meanings? What happens when Christianity ceases to be the common religious tongue that everybody understands? And of course, that's what's happened today. I mean, you're as likely to hear the word sin applied to chocolate as you are to hear sin applied to some sort of transgression of God's law. In fact, our moral lexicon, our moral language has shifted radically. Rather than talking about sin is a problem, you are far more likely to have people whose lexicon of wrongdoing sounds like this harm, toxic, repression, abuse. That's become our new moral language. And what's interesting is that maybe excluding abuse, this language of wrongdoing, it's not about acting contrary to God's will. It's about acting contrary to your own self's desires, to my own desires, or pressuring someone else to act against their desires. That's what's toxic. That's what's repressive. That's what's harmful. So we have an entirely different definition of what the law is. Sin doesn't violate the law of God. It violates the law of self.
0: And that's why a lot of people consider Christians bigots or out of step with the culture or on the wrong side of the moral argument because Christians are constantly calling themselves and everyone to deny themselves, to take up their cross, to follow Jesus, to set aside their own personal agenda, to let God and their community define who they are. And that is just. Not the same way that people in our culture are
1: thinking about sin. Let me give another example of shifting language. Heaven, okay? In all of my years of ministry, and I've been doing this since, I guess, 2010 now, I have literally never had someone ask me, how do I go to heaven? Yeah. Never. I don't even know if
0: I've had that, and obviously I'm older. (laughs) But I do think people were concerned about it. 30 years
1: ago more than they are today. They were concerned about the afterlife, but today it seems like people are far more concerned in how do I fix personal problems? Right. How do I fix societal problems? Yeah. And so heaven has almost dropped out of our lexicon. And I think another reason is simply because most Americans, statistically speaking, think they're going to go to heaven. Yeah. So it's not really a problem for me if I believe in heaven at all, because the youngest generation, Gen Z, there's actually a growing belief in reincarnation, which kind of makes sense with this self-expressive twist, right? If the self is the center of everything, the idea that the self gets lots of turns in life to keep self-expressing and becoming a better self well reincarnation makes a lot of sense
0: Okay, so what we're doing here is we're saying, why do Christians feel all this tension? Why do they feel like that the culture is out to get them, that Jar Jar Binks and Blinky and all of Patrick's Pac-Man friends are out to get them? And that's because the world has changed, or at least that's the option that we're exploring here. That's the answer we're exploring. The world has changed. The demographics have changed. Less people are going to church. Less people consider themselves Christians. The language is changing. And another thing that's changing is our moral norms. In other words, what was one considered right is now considered wrong. What was once considered wrong is now considered right. So think about the seeker-sensitive movement. This is like Willow Creek, Saddleback Community Church. They could count on consensus on the moral norms of America. So they didn't have to define what was right and wrong. They could assume that people came with a shared moral language and that they would feel guilty because they had violated their own conscience and the moral norms of their culture, violated God's law. So what these secret sensitive churches were doing was trying to show people, usually affluent suburban people, that they had a need for Jesus. They were trying to say, hey guys, you know you violated the moral law, you know you're guilty, so now come
1: find Christ. And I don't think that works anymore, does it? (laughs) No, well, think about it. When you're an affluent person, again, who's sharing the same moral norms as everybody else, the main question you need to have answered is just, is Jesus relevant to my personal life? And that's what the Seeker Sensitive Movement was all about. It was all about showing Jesus's relevance. And just to underline how much things have changed, I mean, just stop and think. Miley Cyrus... Selena Gomez, Nick Jonas, they used to have to wear purity rings and claim that they weren't having sex, which I guess I don't know if they were or they weren't, but they'd have to claim that just to gain a wide audience. Think about that happening today. No one's going to do that. Or here's another example. Just to show how far and how swiftly our ethics have shifted. Go back 15 years ago, and you couldn't be elected to the presidential office without holding a traditional view of sex and gender and marriage. People easily forget that when Obama was elected, he was against same-sex marriage. It was in 2008, his first term, right? By second term, he changed. He changed. And the transgender conversation wasn't even on the map. No one's even talking about it. But now, all of a sudden, to hold that view, to hold to a traditional sex ethic, to hold to a traditional view of gender, is seen as being backwards. And that's in a very short period of time.
0: Well, just think back under President Clinton, so not that long ago, 20 years ago-ish, Congress passed and President Clinton signed the Defense of Marriage Act, which was a statement that marriage was only between uh, one man and one woman. It was something that would have come out of the Focus on the Family Handbook. And it passed with overwhelming support in the United States Senate. And now, well, now, of course, gay marriage is on the books. It's legal. It's been declared constitutional. In fact, if you're against gay marriage, you're now a bigoted person. So, that's the point, is that in just a short period of time, we're not talking about it's right or wrong right now, we're just saying in a short period of time, the
1: world has changed and Christians have been found on the wrong side of the cultural issues. Well, and it's probably worth saying, just statistically speaking, 15 years ago, most Americans would have held the traditional view. Now, today, the vast majority of Americans do not hold the traditional view of sex and marriage, but it's not just Americans, it's Christians too. 15 years ago, the vast, vast majority of Christians, of just about every stripe, would have held a traditional view of marriage. And today, now, it's actually slightly over a majority of Christians hold to a non-traditional view of sex and marriage. So it's not just the world out there that's shifting, Christianity's shifting. This goes back to Aaron Wren's point. We now live in a negative world. So standing up against the majority in this particular issue means that you're going to be attacked. So we've talked about shifting demographics, shifting language, shifting moral norms. Let's move on to our very last one, shifting prominence and acceptance. To make this
0: point, let's go back to 9-11. The Twin Towers have fallen... The nation is mourning. It's in crisis. They don't know what to do. We've watched people jump out of buildings to their death. It's horrific. And the nation has this big memorial service in Washington, D.C. to mourn and lament and pray through all this. And who's included in that? Well, none other than America's pastor, Billy Graham. He has a prominent role. And other faith traditions did, too. Fast forward 10 years later to an anniversary of 9-11, and what do you find? No Billy Graham, no faith leaders present in that service. Why? Well, because faith
1: now has become a negative. Another illustration of the point, which if you listen to our intro, you've probably heard many times, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez summed up the view of many, not all, but the view of many during a House Oversight Committee meeting. And she said, the only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. I don't think most Americans would quite go that far, but she's definitely articulating a view that Aaron Wren is responding to, that, again, Christianity isn't positive. It isn't neutral. It's a negative thing. It's something that needs to be resisted and perhaps attacked to defend the common good of our country. You were
0: asking earlier why the school district in Arizona said that the students from Arizona Christian University could no longer serve as student teachers there. And inside that article, there's a quote by one of the school board members, and she's talking about how every child should have a great opportunity when they come to school. And this is a quote from her. She said, when I go to Arizona Christian University's website, and I'm taking this directly from their website, it says this, now she's quoting the website here, above all else, be committed to Jesus Christ, accomplishing his will and advancing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Now, we hear that and we think, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to live for Christ and advance his will. Sure, that's what I want to do. Then she continues reading from the website of the Christian School, and it says this, Part of our values are influence, engage, and transform the culture with the truth by promoting the biblically informed values that are foundational to Western civilization, including the centrality of family, traditional sexual morality, and lifelong marriage between one man and one woman. Now, remember, back in the 90s, President Clinton had signed the Defense of Marriage Act, which said that marriage was between one man and one woman. Now, in 2022, to say that marriage is between one man and one woman is to have your school barred from sending student teachers into a
1: school district. Wow. Things have changed. They really have changed. and. I think that's why what Aaron Wren wrote went viral and has become a paradigm for many pastors, many thought leaders who are trying to untie that Gordian knot to explain why are we feeling so much tension between our faith and our culture? It went viral because it's so persuasive, because it's describing something true. We have gone through dramatic demographic, linguistic, ethical, and prominence shifts for Christians in America. And that's part of what Aaron Wren is saying. That's why you are feeling the tension. So, of course, we have to beg the question, has he untied the Gordian knot? Has he accomplished his said goal? Well, it might surprise you after hearing this much is that Patrick and I
0: are going to disagree with Aaron <laughs> Red After we tried to make the case and to say he's got a lot of really good points, we're ultimately going to disagree with him, not because we don't agree
1: with him that we live in a negative world. Yeah, we definitely live in a negative world. That is undeniable. When people say you don't live in a negative world, and there are people who've responded to him and said that, and I said, well, you have completely missed the ship. Yeah. We live in a negative world.
0: Where we disagree with them is that if we ever lived in a positive world, that we never lived in a world where to be an Orthodox Christian and to speak the truth of Christianity was welcomed by the culture. It's not that we disagree about the negative world, it's that we disagree with the positive world. I think there's a perspective that we can take that will help us see through this
1: I'd say distortion that we ever lived in a positive world. I mean, I would just call it revisionist history because at the end of the day, that's my main problem with Aaron Wren. He has spun the history in the past with half-truths. Cause it is true that America, we already said it, everything about used to once upon a time be demographically mostly Christian, share moral values, and share a kind of religious language. All that's true, but that doesn't mean, like you just said, that it was a positive world to be a Christian. And so let's just go through some examples here. The most obvious one that I think comes to mind for most people is just black experience in America. There are many black Christians throughout history who have felt a profound tension between their faith and their culture, who have felt profoundly out of place following the ethics and the law and the rule of God's kingdom, they felt out of place because they did that. Again, I can just come up with countless examples. You can think about Equiano, who was a slave who was brought from Africa to America. And on that slave ship, he was actually converted to Christianity. He has this amazing description of God's grace coming into his heart and transforming him from the inside out. But when he arrives in America, he's obviously arriving as a slave. And while he eventually wins his freedom, he uses his freedom to speak out against the evils of slavery in America. In other words, he felt profound friction, profound tension between his experience as a slave and the American nation he lived in, which was enslaving people.
0: You know, when I said that we could adopt a perspective that would kind of see through this facade, this is the perspective that you're talking about. It's the Black experience in America. In fact, I think Aaron Wren went back and revised his argument in light of some of the pushback that people gave him, that to be a Black American in the 1940s or 1950s, much less earlier than that, and to speak Orthodox faith about every person being created in the image of God, being due rights and dignity and respect, You couldn't say that in Mississippi and not get a lot of pushback from churches, much less the broader culture. So what you're doing is you're putting real live people and their stories and showing that they felt
1: friction between their faith and their culture. Yeah. Frederick Douglass felt tension. Martin Luther King felt tension. John Perkins felt tension. We can find countless examples of Christians who were being Orthodox, who felt profound tension. But this actually wasn't just the experience of Black Christians in America. It's been the experience of Christians throughout American history. Let me just run through it. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about the evangelicals who were fighting for women's suffrage. They felt some friction. They felt out of place. Or you're talking about the Baptists who were battling against rampant alcoholism. We give temperance a bad rap, and I understand why. There actually a serious issue of alcoholism that led to serious issues with domestic abuse and violence. That's where the temperance movement came from, and Christians felt out of place because they were trying to resist alcoholism. Or we could talk about the Methodists who resisted industrial interests by demanding safe factory conditions and they wanted to end child labor. They felt a profound friction between the values of the kingdom of God and the values of the American industrialists. You could talk about the Presbyterians who resisted us entering into World War I because they feared it would corrupt the character of young men. We could talk about the evangelists, like Billy Graham being one of them, who during the post-war era, they were actively resisting the influence of communism in the academy and in media. You could talk about the members of Labrie who awoke Americans to the evils of abortion. They felt friction and tension between their position and most of American culture, which had embraced abortion at the time. Or you could talk about the Christian professors in the mid-90s who were confronting the idolatry of the markets and greed that was characterizing our country at the time. All of these people, and literally you pick a decade and I will find you Christians and many many of them who felt profound tension between their faith and their culture. This is nothing new. So we
0: come to this Gordian knot. Why do we feel like we're out of place? Why do we feel like the world is against us? Why do we feel like it's so hard to be a Christian now? One answer we've seen, the Aaron Wren answer, has been to say, well, that's because the world has changed. And we agree with him on a lot of his assessment, including his assessment of the present world we live in. We do live in a negative world. Where we disagree with him is that we think he wrongly assesses the past. He paints that in maybe too rosy of a picture for our taste. We don't think that's exactly what the evidence points to. What we come to see then is that following Jesus in every century, following Jesus in every decade, produces a certain tension between the Christian, the Christ
1: follower, and the culture. This is not new. Yeah, it's nothing new. And I know people are going to raise Pfizer. and say, well, lots of people are Christians. So we should probably say this. There's tension between the sincere Jesus-following Christian and the rest of the world. There might not be tension between the nominal Christians who, for example, were pro-segregation and all kinds of other issues and the rest of the world. No, there's tension between sincere followers of Jesus and the world in every single era. And this is why Aaron Wren fails to untie the knot. I mean, maybe gets a few loose strands out in the process, but to untie the knot, he has to give us an explanation for why Christians feel tension, not just in this era, but in every era? If he can answer that, then he hasn't just untied the knot, he's sliced it in half.
0: So now let me guess, we're going to (laughs) try to untie the untieable knot, right? We're going <laughs> to no, no, take no. our stab at the Gordian knot.
1: Yeah, actually, I would reframe that. Yes, we're going to talk about that. I don't think we are going to untie the knot. I think the biblical story cuts through the knot. I think if we take the biblical story seriously, it gives us a different framework than what Aaron Wren is offering that makes not just sense of our present moment, but of our past as well.
0: If you feel out of step with a culture, if you feel like you're being chased around by the monsters in a Pac-Man game, if you feel like it's hard to be a Christian right now and to navigate the current cultural moment, here's the good news. The Bible was written with you in mind because Christians have experienced this for centuries from the very beginning, which is what we're going to go through here, is that the Bible gives you all kinds of resources to live out your faith in this exact moment.
1: If you walk through the Bible, you will find that the faithful followers of Jesus and before that Yahweh have always felt tension between their faith and their world. A few examples, Abraham, you know, Father Abraham, we all know him. He was a wandering Aramean. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 26. He was remembered as a wandering Aramean because he had a nomadic family and that nomadic family found themselves in regular conflict, in regular tension with their neighbors. They felt out of place amongst our Canaanite neighbors. And then remember when Joseph goes down into
0: Egypt and eventually all of his brothers and his father come down to join him. It's not long after that, that Joseph dies and the new Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph and he begins to see this growing Israelite nation as a threat. And so what does he do? He enslaves them. So what's the point? Is that the believers in Yahweh, those who are following Yahweh, were out of step with the culture that they lived in. And so that culture, the Egyptians in this case, became very antagonistic toward them to the point that they enslaved them.
1: Yeah, so do you think the slaves felt tension?
0: Was it easy to be <laughs> a
1: believer then? I mean, no. of course not, right? <laughs> of course not. Was that a positive role? <laughs> let's even go to Israel's history, right? Because that's what people do. Like, Well, most people were Christians back in the 1950s. Okay, let's go back to the time period when most of the people were Israelites. Well, the problem was that even though the Israelites might've worshiped Yahweh, they didn't just worship Yahweh. The Israelites were compromised by paganism. They were worshiping the gods of all of their Canaanite neighbors. And so it's a very small proportion. I think at one point God says, I've got 7,000 people left. (laughs) I've got 7,000 people left who are still exclusively worshiping me. Do you think those 7,000 faithful followers of Yahweh felt tension in Israel? because they weren't pagans, because they weren't going along with Ahab and Jezebel who wanted them to worship Baal and all the foreign gods, of course they felt friction. Of course they felt tension.
0: And then because of the sin of the Israelites that you just described, they end up going into exile. It's 586 BC and Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon comes and invades Israel, destroys the temple. And what does he do? Well, he takes a lot of the people, not all of them, but a lot of them back to Babylon. So this is the stories of like Daniel. And do you think Daniel felt like he lived in a positive world when he lived in Babylon? How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're being threatened with the fire? How about Daniel in Persia when he's— being thrown into the lion's den. Was that the positive world? Well, of course not. Christians were exiles. They were trying to live out their faith in a world that didn't
1: appreciate or respect their faith. Yeah, well, let's just bring it up to the New Testament. The early Jesus movement, we know, suffered under waves and waves and waves of persecution by the Roman Empire. And this led Peter, on the one hand, to call Rome Babylon. He does this at the end of his first letter. But maybe even more importantly, he tells all of these Christians living in what would be modern-day Turkey, who many of them would have been Roman citizens I would have thought about themselves as Romans. He tells them that they're exiles. In other words, he's saying, because you're following Jesus, don't you feel it? the tension between your faith and this environment that is persecuting us. So the early Christians, they thought of themselves as exiles who lived in friction and tension.
0: I don't want to move past that too quickly because I want you to see that exile isn't just a physical dislocation, but it's a spiritual dislocation. It's being out of step with the culture that you thought was home. So a person who maybe is still living where they grew up, right? In their own hometown. As soon as that person becomes a Christian, they're now in exile in their own town, right? In their own family, they're now in exile because exile isn't just about a physical change of space. And when Peter says that Rome is Babylon, that's really important because Babylon was a greatly diminished country far away. So what he's using is Babylon, not now to refer to a geographic place, but to refer to a place that isn't your home. So every Christian lives in, in Babylon.
1: We skipped over Jesus in our description, which is, I just wanted to end with Jesus, because you know what? Jesus felt out of place. Let me just stop. Jesus' parents, they didn't hail from the halls of power, but from the backwaters of the Roman Empire. They ended up having to flee for their lives from a violent king, and they lived their entire lives in the shadow of a military occupation. And John says that when Jesus came, his own people, Israel, didn't even receive him. He was an exile from Rome, and he was an exile from his fellow Israelites. And when we get to the end of his life, we see that the king of the Jews is actually cast out of Jerusalem. He's condemned as a criminal. He's forsaken even by his heavenly father on the cross. He's rejected by people. He's abandoned by his friends. He's exiled in a real sense from his own creation. I love Hebrews 13, because I think it summarizes Jesus's experience of exile. And then guess what it does? It calls us to be just like him. It says this, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate. You see the exile language? He wasn't inside the city. He's outside the city gate. In order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Can you imagine saying to Jesus that he lived
0: in a positive world or a neutral world? It's the world that killed him. It's the world that crucified him. So the Bible unties this Gordian knot. The Bible explains what you and I experience every single day by saying that human beings were created to live with God in the Garden of Eden. But Ever since we got kicked out of Eden, humans got kicked out of Eden because of sin, we have lived in Babylon. We have lived in exile. We have lived in the tension of the moment. We have experienced anxiety instead of peace. We've experienced fear instead of security. We've experienced the tension of trying to navigate our life in a world that is opposed to God. We're all
1: outside of Eden. It's been a negative world since that moment. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating what you just said because there's a sense in which every human lives in a negative world because we're all living outside of Eden. But the other half of what you said that I think is really helpful is humans, because we live outside of Eden, we still have this innate desire to rebuild Eden, Mm. to create the thing that gave us that safety, that gave us that sense of security, that assuaged our anxiety, that made us feel protected. And at the end of the day, that's what Babylon is. Babylon is an attempt to build a kind of shadow Eden, a place that promises everything Eden supposed to offer us, but of course, never provides all of it. Okay, so help us understand that, because I'm not even sure
0: I quite get exactly what you're saying. Babylon is us trying to get back to the Garden
1: of Eden? Yeah. I mean, so think about the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are placed there, and they're given everything they need to build a thriving society. You know, there's gold, there's bdellium, there's rivers, everything ancient people knew you needed to be able to build a society. And God is clearly calling them to spread the boundary of Eden so that it would encompass the whole earth. But when they're exiled from Eden, now they're living outside of the safety of God's presence. They're living outside of the security of having the resources that you need to eat, to protect yourself. Outside of Eden, it's brutish. You know, Cain murders Abel. There's violence every There's abuse happening across the board. And so what do they do to resolve all of this fear and tension? Well, they build Babylon, and Babylon has always been a glorious ruin. There's good things and there's bad things, right? I like to put it this way. Babylon is both a world of beauty and cruelty, creativity and destruction, justice and injustice, order and chaos, freedom and tyranny, love and hate, generosity and greed, goodness and depravity, security and anxiety, health and sickness. And so that's the nature of Babylon. It has some of the goods of Eden built into it, and yet there's something that's deeply distorted inside of it. Okay, so see if I understand.
0: You're saying that because we're creating the image of God, because we were assigned the responsibility to work and develop Eden, when we're kicked out of Eden, all those desires still come with us. We still want to build. We still want to create. But now we live in a negative world. Now we live in a sin-cursed, sin-stained world. So we are corrupted. Therefore, the things that we create, the Babylons that we create, the worlds, the civilizations, the schools, the governments, the families, all of it is partly good because we're creating the image of God, but partly corrupted because we're sinners.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And so the question for us is, if that's the narrative, we were made for Eden, but we woke up in Babylon, what does that mean? What does that mean for the actual faithful follower of Yahweh? And if you follow the rest of the biblical storyline, we find that answer. Followers of Yahweh, they wake up in Babylon too, but they are called to resist the evil. They're called to resist the sin. They're called not to align themselves with what's broken in Babylon. And that's why followers of Yahweh, followers of Jesus, always feel a deep sense of tension with the Babylons that they live in. Let's say that a committed Christ follower was
0: named President United, States, and every House member and every senator was a committed, devoted follower of Jesus. We got all the right laws passed. I know that's not possible, just hypothetically. Would that create Eden again, or would we— just be creating our own Babylon? Or how's that work? And what does it have to say to how we live in this world and what we try
1: to do? It's hard to answer that because your hypothetical is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that actually really matters, right? The point is we actually can't build that utopia. There's no way until Jesus returns with the kingdom of heaven to reunite heaven and earth, there's no way for us to build that utopian society that you just described. And so even the best, most noble human efforts to build a just society—by the way, some Babylonians are worse than others. I'm not making false equivalencies, you know? China versus America. I can tell you where I want to live, but they're both Babylon. They are both Babylon. And so Christians, even in a society where 70% of the people self-identify as Christian, faithful Christians will find themselves in tension. And guess what happened when 70% of America was Christian? Faithful Christians found themselves in profound tension with the order that was around them.
0: Well, so like we were talking earlier about the black experience, if you were black in the 1950s, that's a different experience than if you're black today, right? You have voting or Rights, you have civil rights protection. So, Babylon can be improved, I think is what you're saying. And yet, we're always, as Christians, going to feel like we're living out of step with the culture. And sometimes, what Christians do is we think if we can get in power or if we can write the right kind of laws or whatever, that somehow we'll feel better. And so, we try to relieve the tension in
1: ways that aren't ultimately helpful. Yeah, you cannot bring the kingdom without the king. And until the king returns, it's just not possible. And so it's helpful for Christians, even Christians who are in politics and working for the common good, which we should be doing, to understand that still at the end of the day, we're a part of Babylon. Still at the end of the day, we are exiles living in Babylon.
0: So we're always going to feel tension until Christ returns and brings the new heavens and new
1: earth. I would be deeply uncomfortable if I was talking to, let's say, a U.S. senator who told me that he doesn't feel much tension between his faith and his calling as a senator. I'd say if you're not feeling that tension between your faith and your calling as a senator, you've gotta do something to your faith because there's always going to be tension there. You are a senator in Babylon, that much is true, and you should work for the common good, but the tension, it will never leave. And the reason why I say the tension will never leave is what we already just explored. Throughout history, no matter the time, no matter the place, faithful followers of Yahweh have felt tension. When God calls Abraham and his family literally out of Babylon and brings him into what will eventually be the promised land, Abraham is constantly living in tension with his neighbors. But this is the part I want you to see. Throughout that journey and what will one day be the promised land, there's these stopping points where Abraham will build altars and have these encounters with God. And they often happen at the moments where he is experiencing the most tension between his life and his Canaanite neighbors around him. And God shows up and says, I'm going to bless the nations through you. I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to work through you. And that tells me something, that God wants us to be in tension, that God is actually most present inside the tension, that tension isn't something for us to relieve and release. Tension is the place God wants you to be because that's the place that God is.
0: When you're talking about the hypothetical senator who perhaps in your scenario doesn't feel tension, I was thinking of Daniel who rises to this leadership position in Babylon and then Persia, and how much tension he felt when he had to say really hard things to Nebuchadnezzar, when his buddies refused to bow down to the idol under the threat of the furnace, when he refused to pray to the king, Darius, but instead opened the window and prayed facing Jerusalem to God, and then experienced the lion's den. And I just think all the tension that he felt, and somehow he was able to embrace that. He didn't try to get out of it, but but he met God in those moments. And maybe that's what we need to try to do is stop escaping the tension, stop trying to get out of it, but instead
1: find God in it. I think that's exactly right, and if we had more time, I would start listing out other examples where the people of God are almost in these places of wilderness, in absolute tension, and God shows up again and again and again and again to meet them in the tension. But I want to bring us to the New Testament, because I find it fascinating that when you get to the letters of the New Testament and Revelation, this idea is very much so present. While the word exile is only used in Peter's letter, 1 Peter—it's the only time we see that word in the New Testament—we see another or several other ideas that are present throughout the New Testament. The idea that we are immigrants, the idea that we are sojourners, the idea that we are wanderers. These are all different words, different ways of describing our experience of being out of place, our experience of living in tension. Even Paul's language of being ambassadors for Christ, what's that saying? It's saying you're not actually from your hometown. <laughs> you're from heaven. And so when you walk around your hometown, remember, your life is supposed to be a ambassadorial outpost of heaven in your place. And the beauty is that God meets us there in that tension. When Jesus is doing his little mini apocalypse, he talks about how his followers should expect persecution. And he says, you're going to be dragged before governors, kings, and rulers. And he says, don't worry about what you're going to say, because my spirit's going to be there to guide you. Isn't that interesting? He says, when you get into the most tense possible moment where your life is literally on the line, who's going to show up? the presence and the Spirit of God. And so I think this is a reminder to us that tension, as much as it feels like a problem, as much as it feels like something, according to Aaron Wren, that's new. We didn't really feel that much tension in the past. No, it's not new. Not only is it not new, if you try to resolve it in your life, you will miss out on the deep presence of God that only comes when you are living in the tension. So the way
0: the Bible unties the Gordian knot is to say that Christians have always lived in a negative world this side of the Garden of Eden. We've all lived in Babylon. We all live in a world that doesn't embrace our faith, doesn't get our faith, doesn't agree with our faith. It manifests itself differently in different cultures, in different centuries, in different decades. But still, we all have always lived in a negative world, and we will live in a negative world until we reach the new heaven and new earth. Therefore, if you are living in tension with a culture around you, that's a really good sign. If you're not, uh uh-oh, now I've got to figure out why am I not? Have I accommodated the culture? Have I separated too much from the culture? You know, those are conversations that we can have, but you should feel the tension. That's a good thing. And that's, like you said, where God
1: will show up and meet you. Yeah. So going back to Pac-Man, as much as it can feel miserable to feel like you're navigating some sort of maze and you've got Inky Blinky and all the other guys chasing after you, what if we reframe that whole thing and we saw it as beauty? We saw it as a friend and we said, yes, it's hard to be chased this way, but Jesus was chased that way. And Jesus is present in the chasing. And somehow through this, not only will God sanctify me and sanctify my community, somehow through this, if I respond the way Jesus told me to, loving my enemies, turning the other cheeks, speaking with grace and truth and love, if I do those things, somehow that's actually the way in which God not only judges Babylon, but in the end brings the kingdom of God.